Thanks, Peter and band, and good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it is your first time here or uh, maybe tuning in from home for the first time, welcome to uh, our church. We're glad to have you guys. Uh, we are right now uh, in a series in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, which most of you know will uh, take us through uh, some of March, actually, so it's a, a longer series uh, for us. We love doing this, though. We love preaching through the books of the Bible, uh, kind of uh, A to Z in, in a um, verse-by-verse way. Uh, expositionally, and so, um, so here we are. It's been a, a, a fun year in some ways, doing some shorter series, and we have done this in other books as well, but, um, but this will be a, a, longer, a longer journey for us. So uh, we're in week three right now, so if you have not uh, joined us so far, or if you're new to 2 Corinthians, uh, there are um, two Corinthians books in the New Testament, hence the number two, uh, which may go without saying, but uh, this is uh, Paul's second letter written to the church in Corinth, uh, which was a, um, a Greco-Roman port city, uh, essentially, uh, in the region of Achaia. Uh, we talked about that a little bit the, the first uh, week, I believe. And so, um, but this, there was a church there, essentially. And so, just to kind of simplify things, there was a church there that Paul, who wrote this letter, planted. And he's not there now, but he's corresponding with them because he hears what's going on. He hears about their struggles and their sins, their disbeliefs, uh, some things that are kind of causing them to veer off the path of Christ a little bit, uh, and so he writes a letter to them saying, I love you, uh, I love you too much to kind of let you go in, in this uh, capacity, and so I'm, I'm, he's, he's writing to recenter them on, on gospel truth, and lots of other things as well contextually, which we'll talk about, um, but we've essentially been looking at Paul's initial remarks to the Corinthians, uh, who remember are, are not unlike us, and so when you read these letters, in part, uh, I think the invitation for us is to see ourselves in them, whether we've done the exact same things that they, that they have done or are doing the same things that they are doing as churches is not quite the point, uh, but rather just to kind of back up and say, uh, we too are sinners saved by grace, right? Uh, who've been written to by God, uh, by, by way, in, in the Corinthians case, by way of Paul the author, their former pastor, but all of us are being written to, that we have this love letter from God uh, written in the blood of Jesus Christ saying, I love you. Uh, and so um, I, I just want to invite you guys to continue to to hear that, and, you know, whether it's the first time doing that or thousandth, uh, to hear not just Paul's words to the Corinthians, but God's actual words to you, uh, his, his love letter in Christ. And to see that this letter then is reminiscent of God's letter uh, to, to us, the ultimate word, and we'll talk about this today actually, uh, his ultimate word to us is Christ, because Christ is called the word. So we don't have to kind of grapple uh, for this idea, it's just laid out pretty clearly for us, Christ is the word of, of God. All right, so uh, today we're going to look at uh, the theme of Jesus being called the yes of God. Jesus is called, it's uh, not really a name, but uh, it's an idea. He is uh, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is uh, the ultimate yes. And so in Christ, God doesn't say no uh, to us ultimately. Salvifically is kind of the idea. We'll come to that a little bit later. But uh, first, let's read in full. We're going to just continue where, where we left off last week by reading from verse 12 and following. Uh, we'll look at um, 11 verses today uh, before um, we pause. So um, verse 12, Paul again speaking, writing this letter. He uses the, the, um, the words our and we, uh, speaking of uh, Timothy and, and uh, today Silas, uh, some of his partners, uh, but Paul is the one writing, so he's uh, picking up here in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. 
For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All right, wonderful little passage today. A couple of contextual things. To, uh, some of this is a, a reminder from last week. Some of this is new. Uh, but two kind of um, contextual issues, I'll, I'll call it here, historical pieces to understand as, as background information, essentially, to the occasion of the letter, uh, is first, uh, we talked about this last week, but it, it was uh, the idea that many of the Corinthians were ashamed of Paul's suffering. And so Paul's going to continue to address this throughout the letter. It's going to come up today as well, in a way, big part of last week's sermon as well. Uh, but including more on why his weakness in suffering is actually an advantage to them, How, why it sets him apart from these other uh, quote-unquote super apostles, as he sarcastically calls them elsewhere in the letter, who seem stronger and more legitimate, but who aren't. And so he's going to kind of get at ultimately why then strength in weakness as Christians, and, and for Paul himself, is such a gospel issue because of how much it relates to it being about God, it being salvation, everything being about God, not us. It being about grace and his choice to save us, his love poured out through Jesus, not our moral effort or anything, any such thing. So as I said last week or alluded to this, never trust a Christian teacher or a theology that has no category for or room for suffering or, or weakness. Because to teach or experience no suffering is to teach and experience no grace. It's that simple. It would take the focus off of the ongoing importance of Christ's sufferings in our life and our sharing in that suffering for our salvation that came up last week. And instead, it would lead us only to rely on ourselves instead of him. That would be the temptation. That would be the ultimate kind of endgame uh, to a theology, a gospel that had no room for Christian weakness or suffering. So um, I'm going to kind of just hit the pause button a little bit on that because that came up so much last week. I'll, I'll revisit a little bit today, but if you weren't here last week, uh, that sermon is online if you want to catch up. The second piece that is really important for understanding the, the, the background of this letter is that Paul was intending to go see them. He, he was intending to go visit them, but then he didn't. So his plans changed. And that was really hard for an excursion for the Corinthians especially after they received the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was kind of a, a, kind of a discouraging letter. It wasn't discouraging that Paul was like saying, I don't love you or anything like that. He 
poured out his love for them in that letter, but it was a hard letter to receive. If you know the book of 1 Corinthians, you know what I mean. It was, there was a lot of messiness and just sheer corruption and dysfunction in that church that Paul is writing them to address and lovingly, lovingly say you need the gospel as like a healing balm to lay on that, to be, to be healed and to change in Christ by the Spirit. So especially after receiving that letter, to hear from Paul, like, I'm, I'm excited to come see you, but then he didn't, that, that was discouraging. So a big contextual piece, which will come up today, well, it'll start to come up today, it'll be throughout the whole letter, so understand this. It'll actually be hard to understand the letter if you don't know this, but just to simplify, Paul wanted to go, the Spirit of God changed his plans, and, and that's discouraging to Christians. A big part of this letter is Paul writing to address this particular issue. All right? So with that said, let's go back and look at the first paragraph to start. Uh, kind of two big themes today. The, the, the first is Paul's boast. And I put here uh, our boast as well. I think it's uh, important to see ourselves a little bit in, how, in what he's saying here. Paul's and our boast as Christians. So another way to say this would be, wh- what are we boasting? Paul writes this way a lot in his letters. It's kind of weird, actually, and it can be confusing and kind of enigmatic. So uh, it's worth our time thinking over this. What does it mean to boast or brag, basically, as Christians? In one sense, we don't do that. We'll talk about that. In one sense, there's a way to, to, uh, to think about it. All right, so kind of an odd paragraph here. But again, remember the context we just talked about. He's trying to evidence his authenticity and authority as an apostle, as their ex-pastor, as one who still loves them, who is a messenger of Christ. So how the Corinthians could know that he is a legit messenger of Jesus Christ. The, the first boast, kind of two layers of this, the first boast is in the fact that their, so he says, it's plural here, but he says um, his behavior, but speaking also of Timothy and Silas, he says, our behavior was simple and sincere. All right, so back to the first paragraph. Simple, these are important words, simple and sincere. Our Christian behavior, also our message, our gospel, our preaching was sincere. It wasn't changing. It didn't change, uh, you know, from one letter to the next. It was simple. Then he qualifies it further by saying, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. This is a really interesting way he contrasts these ideas. So we, we came to you and we preached to you not by earthly philosophy. It wasn't complex. It was simple, and in its simplicity, it was aligned with the grace of God, the pouring out of God's favor, his grace, his love through Jesus Christ. All right, so the question with that is, what does this tell us? There's there's a couple of dualities going on here, and what he's saying is simplicity and God's grace go together. And then on the flip side of that, complexity and earthly wisdom go together. Now, is that always the way? Not necessarily. It it isn't always the case. But in general, there are truths to those dualities. Paul is saying, my message to you, Corinthians, my preaching and my behavior as an apostle, as a leader, and just a Christian man like you guys, was simple. And that's how you should know that I was being authentic, that my message itself was authentic and legitimate. That's how you should know. That's one of the proofs for me being a true apostle of Christ is my preaching, my message, my behavior was sincere 
and simple. And, and this is why, again, because the gospel is simple, because the grace of God is simple, being saved by the grace of God, actually then behavior-wise, leads us to a very simple, Jesus-focused spirituality. Not a complex, hard-to-understand, religiously ascetic one. All right, then contrastingly, these other Christian teachers, these, um, again, sarcastically called super apostles, who make the gospel hard to understand or too complex or too lofty are likely not teaching you the grace of God. They're teaching you earthly wisdom, earthly philosophy. It might sound very Jesus-y, but they're not teaching you the grace of God. It's too complex. Grace is revealed. It's clarified. It's handed over. It's not climbed or ascended to or figured out. So, again, this is like, it is to say then essentially loftiness. If you want to compare like, you know, um, loftiness to grace, loftiness says figure it out, ascend, go higher. But, but grace says God came down to reveal himself to us in Jesus Christ very clearly. So believe in his descent to, to us to save us. This doesn't mean that things are, you know, are always easy to understand in the Bible or in theology or that God is still not, as the Bible says, unsearchable. He certainly is. And we don't, there's a lot we don't know. There's mysteries uh, that we'll never understand. The Bible even teaches that. There are things that belong to God, it says, and there are things that have been revealed. And so it's not to deny any of that, but it is to say that God is a revealer, not a hider. Like, God wants to be known. He wants to tell us what he's like. He wants to reveal what it means to be. He's not hiding. And in one sense, you could say he was kind of hiding in the Old Testament. There's a reason for that. I don't have time to go into that today. But he progressively reveals himself in a way that when Christ comes, Christ speaks very plainly and clearly, especially when he talks, not in parables, but about his death and resurrection. At one point in the Gospels, the disciples say, when he's talking about his death and resurrection, they say, thank you, Jesus, that now you're not speaking in figures of speech, but now you're speaking plainly and clearly to me. And it was when he was talking about his death and resurrection that things got clear. It's a wonderful paradigm for understanding the Bible. The most clear place in the entire book is when Jesus dies. The most clear place is when he rises again, because the whole book's about that. And so Paul's preaching was about that. And Paul's saying, you know I'm legitimate as an apostle because that's all I preached. That's the, that, that is the main subject matter of every sermon, every letter I've written. It's not changing. You, you have, he says, already understood this. And I hope you'll keep coming to fully understand uh, these, these, same, these same truths. Also in the Gospels, uh, Jesus says at one point, he actually is, as God the Son talking to God, his, to God the Father, and he's saying, God, I, um, I, 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 he, it says he rejoices, and he says he uh, blesses, in a sense, the Father, and he says, it's to your good pleasure, Father, that you have hidden these truths from the learned and that you have revealed them to little children. And so, again, um, what Paul is saying here is that I was not like one of these super apostles. I, I'm not too smart for God, nor should you be, nor should any of us be. 
I'm not replacing grace with earthly wisdom. Paul's saying, that's not me. Um, That's how you should know I'm actually from God and my associates here and and other leaders as well. That's, That's a litmus test. I spoke with sincerity and simplicity, the unwavering gospel of Jesus, so don't be enticed away by these super apostles that you need a PhD to understand their preaching. Uh, that, that is likely telling you they're not preaching grace, but works. All right, the second uh, piece here, speaking of Paul's boast, is he says the Corinthians themselves, like he's saying to the church, you church, you Corinthians, you are my boast. So he's saying, guys, look around. You guys are saved, aren't you? You're Christians, and you weren't like a month ago, you weren't a year ago, or you weren't five years ago. Your life has changed. You've, you've become Christians you know, so he's basically saying the Spirit's work through my preaching is evidence enough of me being an apostle. But I also like the example that Paul is for us in this of how he boasts, it says, in other Christians or other believers. And, and think about that. When, because when we boast in others, what are we not doing? When we boast in others, who are we not boasting in? Ourselves right? It's one thing you never see Paul do is brag or boast in himself, but you do see him boast in the Lord and boast in other Christians. So it's, it's actually, a, and I'll come back to this too, if not today, in future sermons. It's a wonderful example uh, for, for us to follow, but this is what you see. Paul is saying, my boast is not in me, my boast is, is in you. And, and so Paul's not boasting in the Corinthian salvation because he's the one who saved them, he knows only God can save. Paul knew that better than anybody. Actually, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, uh, as it's written in the Old Testament, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what Christians do. We don't boast in ourselves because we're saved by grace, right? And that's essentially what Paul is doing. He's boasting in something outside of himself, in the Lord, by way of, of the, the Corinthians. He's boasting in the work of God in others, isn't that kind of odd? I mean, it's cool, it's beautiful, maybe it makes sense, but it's also an odd way to talk about boasting because he's saying, I'm bragging about something I had nothing to do with. I'm bragging about something I had nothing to do with, only God. That's what he's boasting in. When he does that, though, he's acting distinctly Christian, right? That's the mark of genuine Christianity because that's a mark of grace, not works. It's a mark of love, not pride. It's a mark of boasting and bragging in God who works all things for our good through his son and not in ourselves. You guys see that pattern there? This will keep coming up. Whenever Paul says, I boast in others, it's important to say, what what is he not saying? He's not boasting in himself. And that is, again, another way Paul's saying, this is how you know I'm legitimate. I think we can assume the other super apostles weren't doing this, maybe as well as Paul, if at all. We don't know. But Paul's saying, my boast, my, the way you can know I'm a legitimate apostle, a messenger of Christ, is because I'm boasting in you guys, the church. I'm boasting in what God, ultimately God, by way of you. That, that's my brag and my boast, as a man of weakness and suffering. All right, then Paul um, switches gears a little bit, have that context in mind, but he moves into the second part, which I'm going to call um, Paul's change of plans and the glory of a non 
vacillating gospel. Okay, so let, let's just walk through that paragraph. I'll, I'll stop one more time. I'll stop a couple of times along the way. Uh, verse 15, so he says, because I was aware of this, I wanted to come see you. All right, this is, this is the idea of wanting to visit. He wanted to come see you first. I want to come see you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. All right, so just stop right there for one second. Uh, see the importance here of experiencing grace ongoingly, right? We talk a lot about this here, that the gospel is for Christians as well. The, the idea that we are saved by the gospel at conversion, but then we move on to other things, is completely foreign to the New Testament. Paul says, you already know the, the gospel of grace. You already know that Jesus died for your sins. I want you to experience that a second time, additionally. And that's why he wanted to go and why he eventually does uh, get to them. And this letter is going to talk about that, right? All the letters do. We, we need to experience grace over and over and over. It's not enough to experience it once. That's, that, if that was the case, this wouldn't make any sense. Come on, Paul. Go plant a church somewhere else where people haven't heard yet. Why are you spinning your wheels? That's not what Paul does, right? Ongoing Christian growth, ongoing reflection on the fact that Jesus' son bled for you and me. And seeing the grace, the undeserved favor, just back up like a dump truck and pour over us. We, he wanted that for his church. You know, on behalf of leadership here, uh, I want that for myself, Spencer, and the other elders. We want that for you guys. That's why we preach this the, the way we do. One, it's true in the right way to preach this. That's the most important thing. But two, as your pastors, we want a second, third, fourth, thousandth experience of grace for you. That's why we sing the way we do, why we take the sacraments. I mean, that's a whole other sermon. But th this is our hearts in this, in other words, um, as well. All right, let's keep going, though. Verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? That is to say, just off of my own mind or my own heart, according to me. Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the exact same time. So the, the implied answer here for this question is no. Paul wasn't vacillating. Vacillating just means like uh, undecisive. It's not Oscillating, oscillating is more like just this rhythmic moving back and forth where it's kind of planned and obvious, like an oscillating, like an oscillating uh, sprinkler. Vacillating is like similar, but it's saying it's untrustworthy, impatient, uh, heart's not quite in it, that, that kind of thing. Paul's saying, no, even though I didn't come see you, I wasn't vacillating because I don't make my plans according to the flesh. It wasn't about me. I, I wasn't talking out of both sides of my mouth. God had other plans for me. And in the next section, next week, uh, he'll give other reasons. But before he gets there, he does something very interesting. This is where it, it's both interesting and confusing. So maybe some of you saw, thought this is, wow, this is so cool what he's doing. Others of you are like, that's, that's really weird. I don't get it. And you're in good company if that's, if that's where you're at. This is difficult. But he, gets, he does something very interesting. Instead of defending himself further, he brackets all of like, his experiences to the side for the sake of theology. So let, let's, re let's read what he does in verse 18. He says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you, our gospel, has not been yes and no. 
For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Christ it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit. Okay, so here's what he's doing, just to clarify this. We know that Paul loves them and clearly wanted to see them, but he essentially says here, this is a paraphrase, of course, but my planned visit aside, our word to you was not yes and no. Our, the message of our preaching, the gospel we preach, was not a yes and no type sermon. Our gospel didn't vacillate. Even more, Jesus Christ, the word himself, is not a no to you, but a yes, since all the promises of God find their yes in him. Or another way to say this would be Paul saying to the Corinthians, don't project my change of plans onto the message that we preach to you, nor onto Jesus himself. Does that make sense? Don't project the fact that I couldn't come right away to you onto God. Even though he's saying, I wasn't vacillating, so see a picture of Christ in me in that, and we'll come back to that. But he's saying, he's bracketing his experiences to the side and saying, Christ, the gospel, God himself, was never a no, never a yes, yes, and a no, no. Not that type of vacillating, promise-making, but not promise-keeping God. He always keeps his promises. So the big question here for us then should be, as we read this, okay, I get that, but how is Jesus exactly the yes of God? Because it's still kind of an a, um, abstract idea, right? How exactly is, how does the Bible teach this? In one sense, we, we take this to mean that, and I was kind of getting at this, but that interpretationally, every prophecy or promise or passage of the Bible finds its finish line in Christ. He, he is the ultimate how behind the what's, all right? But in another sense, this verse is more specific than that. It is equating yes with things like trustworthiness and unchangeableness and decisiveness and finality. And so when we apply that filter to this, then we should look back and think, where does the Bible teach this idea? Where does the Bible get at the idea of the word, the gospel, or Jesus himself being trustworthy, unchangeable, decisive, and just final? Or non-vacillating, which, is, which should be good news. That's why he's saying this. It's not just like, oh, I just want you to know my plans. He's saying, I want you to see God in this. Paul's a master at that in, in his letters. That'll be a big part of 2 Corinthians 2. But here's a, here's a few places, not exhaustive list, but moving from Old to New Testament right to the foot of the cross. Let's, let's start in Isaiah 55, 11, where God says through Isaiah, the word that goes out from my mouth it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. All right, so on, on a broad level, just note, note the, as it pertains to God, the finality and assuredness by which God makes this Old Testament promise. It will be done. The Bible says elsewhere God can't lie. But here's the thing. Reading this from a New Testament vantage point, this is not a vague notion of God speaking and accomplishing tasks. 
This refers to Jesus, who is called the Word of God in the New Testament, right? In John 1 and elsewhere. So what God is saying is that through, through Isaiah is that Jesus would one day come and Jesus would proceed from God's mouth. He, he is the ultimate word that God is saying to the world and that he, Jesus, would accomplish the purpose for which he was sent out, which was salvation. And how do we know what God done? For many reasons, but because Jesus said in John 19, 30, he, the word of God, said, it is finished. When he was hanging among criminals, and he breathed his last. And what I want you to see is that right there, both those things together, is the antithesis of vacillation. All right? M- moving ahead into the New Testament, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you, he's quoting the Old Testament law here, he's saying, uh, You shall not swear falsely, but shall Perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So keep your vows, basically. But then Jesus says, But I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more uh, than this comes from evil. So um, lots to say about this, but Jesus is basically changing things here. He's changing the law. Uh, he's saying the Old Testament law said, Keep your vows. Jesus says, Now that I'm here, my advent, my arrival, and the covenant, the New Testament I'm establishing has different rules. And, and he's saying, I, I'm saying don't vow at all. And this is actually very consistent with the movement from law to grace we see in the Bible. Because in the New Testament, life as Christians, it's not about making vows, right? Or it shouldn't be. If you didn't know this, um, look what Jesus is saying here. Your Christian life is not about making vows or promises to God, uh, even to others. We can't keep them. We break them a lot. So, what, what, what Jesus, we vacillate. We vacillate, right? Everyone in the room has vacillated in a sinful, I have, in a sinful way. We don't keep promises. What Jesus is saying here, the New Testament says, leave the vow making to me. Leave the promise making to me. That's not on you anymore. There's an Old Testament law that was meant to fail to give way to the one who actually could keep it, but who is replacing it with himself. And his promise, he swears by himself, Hebrews 6 says, to bless us through his son, God does. Uh, and, and Christ being, the, the, again, the fulfillment of that promise, the ultimate yes of that promise. Jesus says, leave the vow making to me. You guys just speak in simple yeses and nos. That's your spirituality. Simple yeses and nos. Just don't make promises. We live under the promise of God, which leads me then to this last piece, this thir- third, third piece, which is um, Mark 15, the foot of the cross now. Jesus is on the cross, and it says, some of the bystanders said, behold, he's calling Elijah. This is when he called out and said, Eloi, Eloi, lemme sabachthani, uh, which means, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? But, and they're like, they don't quite understand. They think they hear Elijah in Eloi, which doesn't mean, doesn't mean Elijah, but they think they heard that. They say, behold, he's calling Elijah. Let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. And look what it says here right away. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. You see the juxtaposition there? In other words, Jesus didn't call Elijah to take him down, right? 
his response to the bystanders saying, let's see if he calls Elijah to, t- to, take, him, to take him down. His response was crying out, saying it is finished, breathing his last and dying. In other words, with his death, he's saying to the bystanders, no, I will not be taken down. I will not call for angelic help. I will not call for Elijah or call out to my father, though he could have. Even though it says elsewhere, he could, su- he could summon legions of angels to his aid. Remember that uh, story in Gethsemane? He, could, he said, I could, I could call legions of angels to my aid, but again there, he didn't. Just like here, he's not calling out for help. So don't, don't skim over that. Don't skim over the fact that at no point during Jesus' crucifixion do we see him second-guess his life choices. Not once. Nor do we see him desire to come down, nor again ask for help. So why is this important? Going back to 2 Corinthians, but also just right here. Why is this important? Why is this resolve important? It's important because he was in the act of saving you and me when he didn't do those things. He was in the act of loving you and me to the utmost when he didn't vacillate on the cross. He was resolved. The Bible says he uh, set his face, set his face to go to Jerusalem to die. He set his face and he never once looked back. Isn't that amazing love? He did that for you guys. He did that for me. Our church exists because he did it 2,000 years ago. Well, it's built on the fact that he did. If he didn't, There's no hope, there's no church, there's no spirit, there's no salvation. There's no point in gathering, right? Christ was a non, Christ died in in a non-vacillating, cruciform manner. He set his face. And then look at what 2 Corinthians, uh, I don't think I have this up here, but remember what 2 Corinthians uh, 1 said. In him, it is always yes. What, What tense is that verb? present, right? It it doesn't say, in Christ it was, yes, though that's true and good and beautiful. It says to Christians, now God is not vacillating. He never vacillates with you. He never oscillates. He never goes back. He never changes his mind. He doesn't second guess the fact that he saved you when you have a terrible, 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 terrible day. He doesn't second guess that. He loves you. Now, in the present. So now we should think, now his, the promises of God have their effect in my life. Today, right now in this very room, in Christ, God is saying, yes, I love you. Yes, I promise to save you in the end. Yes, I'll always be with you and never forsake you. One of the best promises we have uh, in, in the Bible, of course, as it pertains to Christ. Then, then the outcome of all of this, let me read verse 21 again <clears throat> and 22. And it is God who establishes us with, with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as, as a guarantee. All right, a couple of quick things. This could, this could have been its own sermon, but a couple of quick things. L- look at what he says. Uh, Ephesians 1, I think it's 11 or 13, I can't remember, talks about this idea of guarantee, a spirit mark. So if you're a Christian, you can't see it, but you've been marked by God. You have his name on your forehead. You, you've been renamed. You've been adopted. But you've been marked by him. But look what it says here. The Spirit's presence, his presence, this is the Spirit of God himself, 
his presence in our life is a guarantee that we'll be saved at judgment or in the end when he comes back, when we die. It is a mark of, it's a guarantee. It's a done deal. The Spirit's presence, which, which then is to say, and this is some very simple uh, theological math for you, by the way, if, if this is new to you. Uh, this is one of the most common dualities in the New Testament is that the contrast between spirit and flesh. And we see that here in this passage. Paul mentions flesh, mentions spirit. The opposite of the spirit or God is our works or our flesh or what we do. All right, flesh does not always denote sin. It just denotes us, all right? So, in other words, that's important here, right? Because it says the spirit's presence, not our works, not the flesh, nothing we could ever do could guarantee our inheritance other than God himself, right? I take refuge in this thought. The Bible never says that our works are a guarantee, not once. It never says what you do, how well you believe, how much you perform, how well you keep the law. It never once says that's the guarantee that you'll be saved in the end. Not once. It always says the Spirit of God himself is the guarantee given by grace. Isn't that amazing news? This stuff matters, right? What you think about when you sin or when you're depressed or when you feel distant from God Uh, What you just think about every day when you think about God and perseverance, running your race, matters. It matters. Do we think this way or do you flip it around? It's another way to look at it, right? All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. They don't find their yes in you. There's no yes of God in you and your works and what you do. It's, It's in Christ, not your moral performance because we're saved by the Spirit, not the flesh. Big thing to see here, though, um, I'm going to bring this back to Paul a little bit as a man, um, and then back to Christ one last time. But I, I love in this passage uh, how Paul, it, it, again, such an example for us here. Paul has been humbled by grace, clearly. He used to murder Christians, now he's a Christian. He, he has been humbled by grace. But I love in this passage how Paul, in this whole book, he shifts the focus off of him and onto God, right? He talks a little bit about his plans, and I wasn't vacillating the spirit of other plans. I love you guys, but let me just bracket that to the side, and he talks about Jesus. That is just a great life mantra if you're you're a Christian. Less about you, more about him. Uh, You descend and decrease. He ascends and has ascended and must increase, as John the Baptist uh, famously said. He says, actually, to kind of borrow another word here, visit, which he, talk, he says the word visit earlier in the passage. Paul's saying, even though I wasn't able to visit you, God has visited you. Look what it says in Luke 1 about Jesus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. He's redeemed his people. The tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us, this is speaking of Jesus from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That is a, one of the, uh, you know, the, the Christmassy promises, Advent promises we get in, in the Bible, but it's about Jesus. But look, look at the word visitation. It is one of the words we get to refer to salvation. God's come, he's visited, and when God visits, good things happen in the Old Testament and then here in a culminative way in the New. So, so again, if you don't hear anything else uh, from this passage, I think what we need to hear is God calling out to all of us saying essentially this. 
Since before time itself began, knowing you would fall away from me, I predestined, I determined to save you, and I didn't vacillate on that promise, nor go back on any of my promises, nor even for a second think twice about what I knew I would one day give up to save you, even my one and only beloved son. That's how God calls out to us through the pen of Paul here, through Paul's context, through his writing. This is the theology of 2 Corinthians 1. This is what we need to hear, the voice of our shepherd. And like it says here in verse 20, this is, is what we utter an amen to. This gospel is what we say amen. And, and what does it imply here? It implies God is speaking, not us, right? We're saying amen to something he says. God's speaking. God's not vacillating. God's promising to send his word to be crucified, his one and only son for us. And we utter through him, who's that through? Through Jesus, we utter an amen to God for his glory. And, and so that's, that's the main response, right? Paul's asking nothing of the Corinthians here, nor is God asking anything of us except to utter an amen understand the heart, the resolved heart of God to save you. See his love in that and utter an amen, which means truly, it means let it be so. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a posture of, of passiveness, but, but active worship. Amen. God is speaking. God has promised a yes in Christ to sinners like us if we just simply believe in, in his grace. And it's present tense, not just past it is a second or third or millionth experience of grace that we need, not just a first experience of grace. We need to keep hearing his gospel voice call out to us, an unchanging, unwavering gospel voice that is not earthly wisdom, high philosophy that's like worse than calculus, but simple, simple and sincere because God wants to be known. So don't go looking for him. Know that he's looked for you. He's found you. And he became exactly like you in, your, in, your, in, in my body. So he, he became a human being to be known, to speak our language, and to hang on that cross as our advocate. Um, so let's worship uh, to, to close here. Let me pray for us first, though. Uh, Jesus, thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you for the gospel in it. Uh, help us to believe uh, and to hear your voice, God, call out to us as we close here in this last song. In Christ we pray, amen.